This is day 137 of our daily Bible reading plan. We will be completing Isaiah chapters 2 through 6 today. Lord Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You're so far beyond our comprehension, Lord. We don't understand so often why you are so good to us. We don't deserve it. We are so wretched. We're so wicked, Lord. And yet, you've chosen us from the beginning to be saved and to be brought into your kingdom, into your presence, through the blood of your Son. Lord God, why? Why do you put so much value into us? And we come to you today with a heart of gratitude, with a heart of joy, knowing that you have saved us from the pit, from darkness and separation from you forever. For the least that we can do is to be obedient to you as our master. Lord, show us how to do this today. Show us what it means to pray earnestly for your presence. Please intercede for us as you always have, because we need you so desperately. Please bless the reading of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they were filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust, from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, 
against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and to holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats, their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man, whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked! It will go badly with them, for what he deserves will be done to him. O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O my people, those who guide you will lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who has devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? declares the Lord God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps, 
and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now, it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn. And deserted, she will sit on the ground. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah 
his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Woe to those who add house to house, and join field to field, until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones, without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat, and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her, descend into it. So the common man will be humbled, and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood, and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe, and take away the rights of the one who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation, and will whistle for it, 
from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed, swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles, nor slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp, and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint, and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey, and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go, and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I found today's reading to be absolutely fascinating. 
I've been looking forward to this for some time, going through the book of Isaiah together, so I'm glad we're finally here. So let's look at chapter 2. So you're going to start seeing a pattern with Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't always follow a linear path when he's describing things in his prophecies. So, for example, we see that this is not something that's happening right now. This is not something that did happen or is currently happening. This is talking about a future time. It's talking about, and a lot of times he'll switch to this, is he's referring to the millennial kingdom, the 1,000 years in the new heavens and the new earth. Because look at some of the things that are described here. It says that in verse 3, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. How many countries do that? Do a lot of people seek the Lord right now? Quite the opposite, right? Then verse 4, it'll say, He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. Does he currently do that? Behind the scenes, he is sovereign, but does he govern nations right now? No. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That, to me, sounds like world peace, doesn't it? So obviously this is not now, and this is not going to happen until Jesus returns. So you're going to see this often referred to as the Day of the Lord. Get used to hearing that statement, because a lot of these prophets that we're about to go into will talk often about the Day of the Lord, and that is the Day of Judgment, the day that Jesus will return to rescue his chosen people, and the earth will be subjected to his judgment. So this is during that time. But every so often, he will bounce back to the current day. But in chapter 2, it is almost entirely about future events. Like it says in verse 12, The Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And then it describes all the things that are not going to be safe from his judgment, which is everything. But what's also interesting is it mentions that there's also a period of time described here what the book of Revelation it refers to as the tribulation. So there is a period of time that the people of God will be raptured and there will be those who are left that will remain on the earth. And then there will be many things that happen to them during that time. And it seems to indicate that near the end of chapter 2, where it says, like in verse 19, men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. So that's describing when God has returned and is going to judge his people. And then it says that in that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats. It's almost as if they're going to dig underground to hide, try to hide from God and try to hide from the evil governments. So very interesting language here. A lot of this is very mysterious. I, Of all the things that the Bible talks about, eschatology, the study of 
future events and prophecy are probably my weakest area of knowledge. So I'm not going to try to decipher this too much unless the Lord reveals something to me otherwise. And then he gives us a challenge at the very last verse of chapter 2. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Why do you exalt things that are created by man? They have the breath of life in their nostrils. That breath of life came from somewhere. In fact, it came from someone. So why don't you worship the one that gave them the life instead of the creature, right? And that's what Romans chapter 1 describes, that they worshiped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When we get to chapter 3, Isaiah changes gears. And this is no longer talking about future events as in the end times. But he is going to talk about some things that are going to happen in the near future for the kingdom of Israel, where it will be captured by the Babylonian Empire, which is controlled by Nebuchadnezzar. So it seems that part of the reason why God is so upset with them is the same reasons that God is usually upset with Israel, but he's very specific here. They trusted in the wrong things. They trusted in mighty warriors. They trusted in judges, diviners. So apparently they had enchanters and diviners in their midst. And they had been relying on those instead of relying on God. So all those things will be taken away. And it says that immature people will reign in their place. Capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed. Not only is Isaiah prophesying that bad people will be ruling over the nation, but there is one in particular that we know of from reading the kings who did take over after this event and ruled over Israel for over 50 years, and he was their worst king ever. And that's King Manasseh, who took the throne at the age of 12. So that is immature, to take the throne at 12 and then be an evil king for 50-something years. He's not the only one, though. There are kings after him, like Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. All of them are going to be bad. And they are all just immature people. So... He's prophesying that it's going to get worse. So it talks about that going up until about verse 18. And then it will jump again to the future kingdom. And then when you begin chapter 4, it starts going back into the millennial kingdom once again. And then it mentions in verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord. What is that? In my translation of the Bible, it put branch with a capital B. Kind of gives you a big hint of who this is. The branch of the Lord is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the one that will be beautiful and glorious in that day. Again, in that day is referring to the day of the Lord. So in the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, it says that the Lord Jesus will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors 
of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. It is being specific about Israel here, but if you look at the figurative language in parts of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jesus established a new covenant with the Gentiles, just like you and I. Under the covenant of Jesus Christ that he instituted through his life, death, and resurrection, he has now called us to be his chosen people. So when it talks about Israel, sometimes it talks about the actual nation, but then sometimes it talks about his chosen people beyond the walls of Jerusalem. So it will come about that he who is left in Zion, and that is God's holy city, they will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life. It talks about in the book of Revelation as well that there is a book of life, and those who belong to Christ are written in that book of life, as in those are the ones that are his elect. And so it's giving figurative language here about the new Jerusalem that the people who will live in New Jerusalem are the ones that are saved. And this will take place, as described in Revelation, as when the Lord returns. And it will say here that, in verse 4, He will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purge the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. This is all connected. Because again, he's coming to judge the earth. But also in Peter, he talks about this, that the Lord will not destroy the world again by water. He's already promised that by the rainbow. Unfortunately, the rainbow has been so distorted because of the homosexual agenda. But the rainbow was put in the sky, if you recall, as a sign that he would never flood the earth again. That he would never destroy the world by water. This time, in the future, he will be destroying the world by fire. And this is what it's talking about here. The spirit of burning will purge this creation of all sin and death. And that's exactly what's being described here. And this is Old Testament, y'all. This is way before Jesus came onto the scene. So this is nothing new. Again, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of of everything the Old Testament talked about. And anytime it says here that the Lord said, that's Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the Lord. So he was a part of this this whole time. Moving to chapter 5, moving into chapter 5, we see a parable of a vineyard. And at the first glance, it reminds you of the one that Jesus told when he was on earth. Then we see in verse Three, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? God is describing here that he has done exactly as he promised he would. When they obey him, he would cause this land to be prosperous. When they disobeyed him, he caused it to be a desolation. That's exactly what's going on right now. He's making it a desolation. 
I have told you what I expected from you, and I have done my end of the deal. So why, Israel, have you not done your end of the deal, and you have not followed after me? I expected you to be good grapes. I expected you to be good fruit of my efforts. But you have chosen a different path for yourselves, the path I told you not to take. And so you have become worthless grapes. So then verse 5, now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. Oh boy, here it comes. I will remove its hedge and will, it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be, become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. Okay, and then he goes on and on about what he's going to do to it. He's doing everything he committed that he was going to do as part of their covenant. His covenant people defied him. Therefore, he is going to take action accordingly. This is nothing new. We've seen this happen countless times so far. This particular chapter is a bit lengthy, but to summarize what is going on here, from verses 8 through 25, there are six points to an indictment that God has against Israel, and each point beginning with the word woe. So we see in verse 8, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field. Some things that he is indicting Israel. This is why I'm upset with you. This is what you have done to get to this point. Number one, we see in verse beginning in verse 8, we see that they are grabbing land. They are not respecting ancestral boundaries and property lines and just getting very greedy with territory. So now he's going to make mansions desolate and the land will become unproductive. Beginning in verse 11, we see woe to those that are drunkards, woe to the alcoholics, woe to those who let the vices of this world cause them to stumble. Then we see in verse 18, woe to those who blaspheme the name of the Lord, those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. You speak falsely about God. That is blasphemy. Then we see in verse 20, Woe to those who pervert moral distinctions. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, those who are conceited. And I thought 4 and 5 looks exactly like our world right now. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Just read the headlines any given day these days, and this sounds just like them. I thought for a minute that verses 20 through 23 were describing our nation right now. And then lastly, we see in verses 22 through 25 that the Lord is saying woe to those who hold a seat of authority, usually a judge, and yet they're impaired. They are taking bribes. They are drunk. They are judging unjustly. And so therefore, he is going to take action. And that's what we see in verse 26. He will also lift up a standard as in a banner 
like a giant flag on a battlefield. And with a whistle, he is going to summon nations from afar in order to punish his people. And that's going to be Babylon. So we see that is going to happen. He has already declared it as such. When we get to chapter 6, though, it dramatically changes gears. And this is one of, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible because of what we see here. And we need to really pay attention to this. So it says that in the year of King Uzziah's death, historians have documented that it was around 740 BC that this happened. That's when historical records claim that King Uzziah died. So this is still hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. And this is when Isaiah was commissioned to be a prophet. So it shows that he had a vision of God on his throne. And I can't even imagine what that looks like. But just by this brief description of what we see here, it is just fascinating to think about. And then we see a certain type of angel being referenced here, seraphim. So we don't know how many kinds of angels there are. There's some that are mentioned in the Bible, like cherubs and seraphs. But we don't know what other kinds of angels there are, if there are other kinds of angels, if archangels fall into one of these categories. There's a lot of things that are unknown in this. But according to what we see here, seraphim seem to be humanoid. They seem to be human-ish. But yet they also have six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And then they called out to one another. That's an interesting how they do that. They called out to each other. They, almost they were announcing to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So again, for something to be holy in the Bible... It's not talking about being covered in light. Holiness is a Hebrew word for separate, for being separate from something. God declares us as his royal priesthood, his holy nation. So when he calls us holy, he's calling us separate from a sinful and immoral world. So when we are to be holy, like he is holy, He's telling us to stop sinning. He's telling us to be different from the course of this world. And so in that essence, because we have the imputation of God's grace through Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit indwelt in us, we are in some degree holy. We are called to be holy. The holiness does not originate from us, but we are now, by God's power, been made holy, and we are continuing towards holiness through the process of sanctification. And we see certain things in the Bible are double holy. The way that the Hebrew language structured this is every time you repeat a word, it intensifies it. So, so often in the Bible, you'll see, for example, God referring to somebody by name. And, you know, he's identifying them as their name, right? 
But think about Saul on the way to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul. Why did he repeat his name twice? Because in Hebrew and in the Greek, when you were to repeat their name twice, you are showing that you have intimate knowledge of this person. You're showing familiarity. You're showing a relationship with that person, that intimacy. In almost all the places of the Bible, we'll see things repeated twice to show how intimate or how it is a level beyond just holy. So in the event that the Bible says something is holy, holy, double holy, it's saying that it is a level above your normal holy. But there's only one place in the entire Bible where holy is threefold. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Not only is it intensifying the holiness of God in that in the three persons of the Trinity, they are each holy, yes, but it also is showing that he is at a higher echelon of holiness that we are not in. He is in a league of his own. He is in a class of his own. And we cannot get to that level of holiness. He is far beyond us in that way. That's how it is in the language of Scripture, that we are one holy, for example. The angels are double holy, but we have triple holy, which is God alone. And he's in a class of his own. Even his creation knows and trembles in his sight. We see that in verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him. His creation, even inanimate objects, worship him. They know their master, and they fear him. So even his creation around us speaks to how powerful he is. Then we need to understand verse 5 properly because this is different in many translations of the Bible. In my translation, Isaiah exclaims, Woe is me, for I am ruined. In some translations, it might say, I am undone. The emphasis here is to understand what this means. Woe is me. So, he's, he's, is he just feeling pity for himself? What is he saying here? He is saying, I am doomed. I am totally doomed because I am ruined. He's looking upon God himself on his throne. He's looking at something far beyond his comprehension, and it is causing to him to see how dirty he is. He sees how sinful he is and how much he falls short. The actual word for ruined in my Bible, the original Hebrew for it is similar to the word deconstructed. I am torn apart because what I have seen is so far beyond me and is so holy that I should be utterly disintegrated right now. I am being deconstructed. So his body, his soul, his spirit is torn apart because he is so dirty in comparison to God. 
and this has put him in a spirit of contrition. And this is a word that we need to have in our language more often. That idea of contrition. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We are not worthy, Lord, to be in your presence, and yet here I am. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am utterly ruined. And then we see the Lord cause an angel to grab a burning coal and put that on the lips of Isaiah. So it's not that Isaiah himself sought forgiveness. You see that he says he's ruined and he's seen the Lord, but he has not asked for forgiveness, nor has he changed anything. But we see that God takes the initiative to forgive him and to cleanse him. God has always been the one to act first. He loved us first. He saved us first. He elected us first. He created us first. We did nothing. We are all recipients of everything. We have not done anything to contribute anything to ourselves. It has all been from the hand of God from the very beginning. And even in this, in his commissioning of Isaiah, and if you want to even illustrate this as what salvation looks like to our souls, God did it first. He took the initiative. It touched his lips and it says, Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. You have been restored. You have been made clean. And we have the commissioning of Isaiah come from the mouth of the Lord. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us being the Trinity, of course. Who will you respond if God were to ask you that? Whom shall I send? And who's going to go for us? We hear that call in our lives. We need to answer just like Isaiah said. Here am I. Send me. Use me, Lord, for your ministry. You don't need me, but you want me to in your ministry. Here I am. I'm standing right here. I'm ready to go. Send me. And God will do exactly like he did with Isaiah. He said, go and tell the people. Tell the people what? Tell the people the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what applies to us. They need to know. They need to know what God's word is. In this fallen world, we don't have the power to save anyone. But God has invited us into this activity by being his voice in the wilderness. So we need to make it a priority that everywhere we go, we carry the light of Christ in our lives, and it comes out of our mouth often. And I think that as a global church, we have failed to do so. Things have gotten the way they have, partly because we have allowed it to happen. And we have the opportunity to fix it and speak boldly in the name of Christ. Now, what he is commissioning Isaiah to speak about is that he will cause the nation to be disbanded. But then he also prophesies in verse 13 that a tenth portion in it will return and survive the burning. So he's referring to the remnant, which again is a recurring theme. The remnant will return to 
the land of Israel, and that's what we see during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So he is prophesying that his holy seed, those his chosen people that he loves, will be restored. And then we're going to see in chapter 7 that the coming Messiah is going to be announced, and it will be beautiful to see because it is that season as well, to be mindful of what God has prophesied. And for now, that's all I have. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.